Well, good morning, everybody. My name is Craig. I'm one of the elders from Harvest North, and I'm really glad to be here with you this morning as we uh, get to study God's Word together while Quinton is off at the uh, Seniors Pastors Conference. I, uh, I'm glad that I'm here because uh, we drove down from Airdrie this morning, and uh, the roads were a little less than great. There was a uh, vehicle spun out. There was vehicles on their side. We saw a vehicle that was completely on its roof. Um, and so, yeah, so we're glad to be here. Um, and, and it's funny because generally I really like traveling. I, I really enjoy it. We, uh, I had the opportunity last, uh, uh, last month, uh, beginning of last month, to go down to Kentucky to uh, take some classes. And uh, yeah, I, just, I just love, I love traveling. I love going to different places. But every time I travel, especially internationally, you always have that moment of sheer terror where you think that you've lost your passport. And you can see it happening in airports all over the place. People are walking along and all of a sudden they just stop and there's like a full body pack down. Like, oh, where, where is it? I, I've got to have it. And for some reason, like, we, we feel like our entire identities are, are caught up in this little piece of plastic or this little book. And, and in, in some ways, they are. In some ways, they're really, really important. But um, I think that's true for a lot of things in our lives. When, when we look at uh, our lives, we look at what we have in our homes, we look at what we focus our time and our attention on, those are the things that really define what we value, that's my wife's cell phone, so I apologize for that. It's not me calling her. Perfect. Thank you. So, um, when we look at what we have in our homes, what we spend our time on, it really does help define what we determine to be important in our lives. These are the things that matter to us. These are the things that we, we spend our money on. And in some ways, these things can begin to define us. Now, that's not necessarily a bad thing, but when, when it does become bad is, is when those things be- define us more than our faith, more than who we are in Christ. And, you know, maybe we, we know people like that. Maybe you are people like that where, you know, you, you look at the, their Facebook feed and it's all about one thing over and over and over again. You're like, yeah, I know where, where they're passionate about. Or, you know, you go to their house and, and they've got the memorabilia of this or the collection of that. And so when people talk about you, they're like, oh, you should go and talk to Bob. He is passionate about whatever. Or you should go and talk to Susan. She knows everything about this. It, it's her life. But the question for us is, how often do people say about us, oh, you should go and talk to John. He is passionate about God. You should go and talk to Susan. God is her life. She can tell you so much about what he has done for her. So this morning, we're going to take a break from Colossians. We're actually going to jump into Philippians. Um, so if you have a Bible, go ahead and flip with it with me to Philippians chapter 3. If you don't have a Bible, go ahead and slip up your hand, and our ushers will be glad to give you one. If you don't have a Bible at home, you can take that one with you. The uh, important thing is that we're following along as we study the Word of God. So uh, we're going to be reading in Philippians chapter 3, and we're going to read the first 11 verses. And it says this, Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. Look out for the dogs, look out for the evildoers, look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. 
Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead." Let's just go to God in prayer. Our God, we are so thankful for this time where we can study your word. We come to it expectantly because we know that your word is living and active. We know that it is sharper than any two-edged sword. And so, God, we, we long to, we need to hear from you this morning. I pray that your spirit would work in and through me to speak the words that you would have me speak. Let it all be of you and for you. God, I pray that as we leave, that we would um, have a, a better appreciation for what is truly important, what is truly valuable in our lives. We thank you, our God, for this time together. We worship you and do so in Jesus' name. Amen. So before we get too far into this section, it's probably good to give just a little bit of context as to what's happening in Philippians, what's going on in Paul's life when he's writing He's writing from, uh, from Rome during his first Roman imprisonment. So this book is one of what are called the prison epistles. So the other ones are Ephesians, Colossians, and Philemon. And so Paul has been placed in prison. He's writing to, to the Philippians. But you can see here that if you read through the book, he has a lot of things to commend the Philippians for. Um, it's really an epistle of, of rejoicing and of joy and hope. Uh, Paul actually references this idea of rejoicing and joy about 12 times in the book. So he knows that things are going well in Philippi, but he also knows that there's a, there's a need to keep vigilant. There's a need to make sure that we're always guarding our hearts and, and keeping our, our, our eyes and our focus where it needs to be. Which brings us to this section here. It begins by, by a rejoicing in the Lord, a call to the Ephesians, finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. Remember, Paul's in prison as he's writing this, and yet he can still say that he has reason to rejoice in the Lord, because he's so full of the goodness and the greatness of the gospel, what Jesus Christ has done in his life, that it really doesn't matter where he is. His whole heart, his whole focus is on rejoicing in the Lord, and he wants to remind the Philippians to do the same thing, and he says, to write that to you is safe for me and good for you. And so the... the, no trouble for me and safe for you. And so he, he wants to make sure that regardless of what's going on in Philippi, regardless of how good things have been or how bad things may be, the point is we are to rejoice in the Lord because we have a reason to rejoice regardless of what else is going on in our lives. What, what Paul realizes of the Philippians, I think is true of you and me because too often we forget to rejoice. When things are going really, really well in our lives, we just think that we deserve it. This is the way life should be. Life should be good. 
Life should be joyful. Life should be hopeful. And so when things are going really well, it's not that we turn to God in rejoicing. We're simply like, well, good. God's giving me what I deserve. I deserve to be happy, and I'm happy, and so we move on. It's really when things go bad in our lives that we turn to God and we start crying out for, for encouragement, for comfort, for strength. We cry out to him to maybe remove the burden or to lessen the burden that we're going through. James says, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. Count it all joys when we meet trials. Why? Because that's what drives our heart back to God. And we can rejoice in what God has done and is doing in our lives through all of this. How quickly, though, when we come out of that time of difficulty, that time of darkness, do we forget to rejoice? In in that moment, we're pleading with God. And when we come out of it, how quickly we forget God. I I was thinking about that myself recently. I was putting my my sons to bed. And as they crawled into their beds and they were pulling the duvet up to their neck and, and snuggling in, realized they have no idea that this isn't normal. I was reading this morning that one in six kids lives in a war zone. That doesn't include the kids who are suffering from abuse or starvation, homeless. My boys have no idea that their life isn't normal. But how much do I rejoice in the blessings that God has given me in allowing me to put my kids to bed in safety and security? So easy, we forget these things. We just expect it. We expect these things to be normal in our lives. And, and, and it really convicted me as to how, how unthankful I am for all that God has given. And then we translate that into the Christian life. We were enemies of God. We were deserving of his judgment and his wrath. But instead, he sent Jesus Christ to pay the penalty for our sin and adopted us as children. And so we can call the God of the universe our Father. How thankful are we for that? How quickly we forget to be thankful for that. So Paul says, rejoice in the Lord. But Paul's also giving a warning to the Philippians here. If we look in verse 2, because there was men there who were not only not rejoicing in the Lord, they were rejoicing in themselves, in what they had accomplished, in what they had done, in their own achievements, in, in their own importance, the titles that they had earned. It's one of of the greatest hindrances in the Christian faith is the fact that Christianity is faith-based, not work-based. The fact that we can't do anything to earn our salvation is a stumbling block to a lot of people. I was talking to somebody about that this week, and he's really struggling with the fact that his sins are forgiven simply by true faith and repentance. And he was saying, "But, but shouldn't I have to do something else? Because we have a society that honors people who are self-made. We bestow honors upon them, public honors. We build statues to them. We name buildings after them. People who have done something with their life. People who have have earned their place in society. But, But nobody likes that kid who gets everything handed to him on a silver platter. The people who never had to work for anything that they ever got. I used to work for, years ago, I used to work for a... uh, a grocery chain, largest grocery chain in, in, in the country. And the, the president of that grocery chain is the son of the former president of that grocery chain. 
Um, and it's a family-controlled business, and it's been passed down from father to son. And he became president of the largest grocery chain in Canada at the ripe old age of 34. And he and his wife traveled to Paris on the weekends on their private jet and don't think anything of it. Those kind of people we don't like because they got everything handed to them. Ah, here I am slaving away, working. You got everything handed to you on a silver platter. This is the same thing that's happened to us in Christianity. We have had everything handed to us. We haven't done anything to deserve it. There's nothing we can point to to say, I earned this in the eyes of God. And sometimes when we realize that, we can struggle. We can struggle to say, no, but I I want to earn it. I want to do things to earn my salvation. In Philippi, we have that here in verse 2. We have these Jewish men that were demanding that the Gentile Christians abide by the Jewish law. That they live up to the same standards of the Mosaic law that they had lived up to. Basically, that they earn their salvation. Because the law is a really safe place to be. The law is somewhere where you can point to, here's what, I have achieved, here's what I have achieved, and here's what I haven't done. You can feel good about yourself. But what does Paul call these men? Paul calls them dogs, evildoers, and those who mutilate the flesh. Not exactly a commendation for anybody who's trying to earn their salvation. This is a, a really strong judgment by, uh, by Paul because dogs were despised in Jewish society. Mutilators of the flesh, those are the people who practiced circumcision. Now, circumcision was commanded in the Old Testament, and here Paul is saying anybody who does that or demands it or mandates it in the New Testament is a mutilator of the flesh. That's not a commendation of any kind. These people who try to add to their own salvation are vile workers of evil in the eyes of Paul. And why would Paul use such strong language? Because he knows what Christ accomplished on the cross. When Jesus died on the cross, what did he say? He said, it is finished. He fully, finally, and forever completed everything that was necessary for salvation. To think that we could add anything to that, it's not only arrogant, but it's self-defeating. Because God demands perfection in order for us to be saved. I don't know about you, but on my best day, I fall far short of perfection. The problem is, without our doing these things, we sometimes think, well, I'm never going to be worthy of salvation. Well, let me encourage you by saying you're right. You won't. You will never be worthy of your salvation. That's the point. The point is that while we were yet sinners... Christ died for us. While we were still enemies of God, God looked on us in love and said, I want to save you, and I am willing to sacrifice my own son for your sake. Because we're not saved by law, we're saved by the grace and mercy of God. Let that sink in for a minute. God loves you. God, the the creator, the sustainer of the entire universe, the one that holds everything together by the word of his power, this God, he loves deeply, immeasurably, immutably, wholly and forever, you, right here, right now, in spite of everything that you have done, in spite of your deepest shame, in spite of your deepest regret, 
in spite of all the sins that you have done, if you are in Christ, God loves you. It's incredible. It's incredible. For Paul, that truth meant everything. Every wall was broken down. Every hindrance was removed. Every barrier broken down. In the eyes of God, there's no difference now between the rich and the poor, between the strong and the weak, before, between the famous or the obscure. Every single one of us is saved on the same basis, in the same way, for the same purpose. That's why Paul says in verse 3 that we are the circumcision. The we is both Jews and Gentiles. Because normally only the Jews were circumcised, as we were saying in the Old Testament, but now in Christ we're all circumcised. It's a spiritual circumcision. Sinful flesh has been cut away from our heart. So the question, of course, that may be coming up at this point in time is, okay, so that means I, have, I don't have to do anything. Right? I'm saved by grace, now I can just coast and not do a single thing. Well, that's not true either, because if this truth has impacted us at all, we'd want to do something about it. Last, uh, last fall, I had the chance of going out to Ontario, and I saw the Ni- Niagara Falls for the very first time, and I mean, it was magnificent. I mean, it was just roaring. It's so huge. And it got me thinking, like, imagine if you were in a little canoe or a dinghy going down, heading towards the falls. And they have all those signs where, like, this is the point of no return, right? You've gotten too far. Imagine you've gone past that, and there's no way that you can reach the shore. Like, with your little paddle, there's, there's, it's inexorably driving you towards the falls. And just when it looks like all hope is lost, somebody comes along with a motorboat and grabs you and throws you into the boat and takes you to shore. Now, if that happened, and you knew that you were literally this close away from tumbling over the falls and certain death... Would you want to spend any time at all finding out who it was who went out onto that river to save your life? You probably would. You'd probably want to find out their name. You'd probably want to find out what on earth made you come out in the middle of this river and save me. I mean, that's a a ridiculously small example. But Paul's saying the same thing here. If we have been saved by the grace of God, then we want to do something about it. We don't want to simply say, yeah, you know, God, I know that I was just about to suffer on ending punishment in hell. Thanks for that. And then I'm gone. Like, we clearly don't know what we just escaped from if we're just walking away from it. If we've been impacted, we want to have lives that are marked by that. Paul says, if our lives are marked by that, we do three things as a result. He says, we worship by the Spirit of God, we glory in Christ, and we put no confidence in the flesh. We could spend like an hour on those three points, but um, I don't think you would want that. I don't think that my kids would want that. So we'll just touch on them briefly and keep going. We, first, we have the indwelling spirit in our lives. We don't worship according to rules and regulations. We don't worship according to tradition. We worship out of an overflow of the spirit in our lives. Paul says in Romans 8.15, For you did not receive a spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you receive the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. Because we have the spirit in us, we want to worship God. We want to glorify God. We want to praise God for all that he has done in our lives. And if we have the spirit, then we want to glory in Christ. Glorying in Christ means that we, we glory in the work and the person of Jesus. 
Hebrews says that Jesus is the author and completer of our salvation. He began it, he finished it, he did it all. And so we glory in what Christ has accomplished for us. And by default, those who glory in Christ, those who boast in Christ, don't boast in anything else. We have nothing else to boast in if we're boasting in Christ. That brings us to the final point. If we're indwelt by the Spirit and we're glorying in Christ, we put no confidence or hope in our flesh, which is exactly what Paul says in this next section here. Because if anybody has a reason to boast in the flesh, it is Paul. Paul lists all the things that he's done in his life which say that he is worthy to boast in his flesh if he wanted to. The Judaizers here in Philippi, these evil dogs and uh, mutilators of the flesh, they were trying to boast in what they had accomplished. And Paul's like, trust me, don't go there. If you want to boast, let me just tell you all the things that I have done. First, he was circumcised on the eighth day, which is in line with uh, Levitical law. Leviticus 12.3 says to circumcise on the eighth day. He was the people of Israel, not a mixed race. He was a pure Jew from the tribe of Benjamin. Uh, he was a uh, Hebrew of Hebrews. Like he, His lineage is perfect. So he can look back as far as he can and say, I am Jew of the Jews. Now, let's go on to my understanding of the law. I'm a Pharisee. Now, Pharisees back then were top of the heap when it came to following the law. They were the conservative, orthodox followers of the Jewish faith. Paul, um, they, the Judaizers would say, well, you know, so are we. We follow the law. But Paul says, you know what? I studied under Gamaliel, the greatest Pharisee, Pharisaical teacher of them all. And what did that lead to? That led to a zeal for the Jewish faith that none of you could match. I was a persecutor of the church like nobody else before me or nobody else after me. I'm, I was a celebrity enforcer of my day, is basically what he's saying. And as to keeping all the Mosaic law, yep, did that too. So if anybody has right to stand and say, I've earned my salvation, it's me. I followed the law. I am blameless before the law. So you want to put confidence in the flesh? Trust me, I've got more reason to put confidence in the flesh. But as we go on, Paul says that there's nothing that he puts confidence in except for Jesus Christ. Now, I want to take a step back here because we've been talking about you know, our lives outside the church and, and, and our works outside, but sometimes we can fall into that trap inside the church as well. We can serve in the church, but we can serve for all the wrong reasons. We can serve because we want the praise of men. We want men to look at us and say, wow, wow, they're really good at serving. Wow, they sacrifice so much. You know, sometimes we look at our own Christian life and how much we've served in the church, how much money we've given to the church, the time slaving away behind the scenes to serve others. Did you know I have served in children's ministry three weeks in a row? <laughs> and trust me, if you knew these kids, you would be seriously impressed. And we let everybody know. We you know, posted on Facebook, you know, just happy to serve the church, hashtag humbled, hashtag blessed. <laughs> but why do we do that? Because we want praise of men. We want people to know that we are serving in various ways. And we look at others who aren't serving or maybe aren't serving even in ways that we can necessarily see, and we judge them just a little bit. 
you come to church every Sunday, and you sit down in the chairs, and you don't even know who put them there. Well, it was me. <laughs> it's okay. I am not bitter. I'm not angry. I'm doing it for God, and he loves me all the more for it anyway. And we don't necessarily put it in those words, but this is what we can think. This is how we can act. We act in such a way of, what's the ministry that's going to get me recognized? What's the ministry that's going to have people say, wow, there's such a faithful servant in the church? It reminds me of the parable in Matthew 20 about the, the, the master who hired workers for his vineyard all throughout the day. If you're, you remember that, he starts at, at 6 a.m., beginning of the day, and he, and he hires these men and offers to pay them a full day's wage if they work for 12 hours in his vineyard. Then he goes out and he hires more men at 9 a.m., and then again at noon, again at 3, and then at 5 p.m., one hour before quitting time. And he says, come and work, and I'll just pay you whatever is fair. So, at the end of the day, he uh, calls all these workers together, and he's going to pay them for their work. And he, going in reverse order, he starts with the last hired to be first paid. And so these guys who started at 5 p.m., worked for one hour, they go up, and they're paid a full day's wage for the one hour of work. And of course, the guys who started at 6, they're like, oh, yeah, this is great. I mean, if they're getting paid full day's wage for one hour, we work 12 hours, like, this is going to be amazing. So get to paying them, and he gives them full day's wage. And they say, well, hold on a minute. How come they got paid more than we did? They got paid the same as we did. They did far less work. The master said, well, didn't I promise to pay you a day's wage? I'm fulfilling my promise to you. For what happened with the others, that's really none of your business. In, I know in my Christian walk, I used to think that I was one of those like 6 a.m., 9 a.m. hires. You know, I, was, I was converted relatively young, and, and I've been you know, working and serving, and you kind of think, you know, I deserve a lot for my faithful service in the church for however many years I've been serving. And we look at others and think, oh, you know what? These people who've come after me, you know, I, I, I hope they get their reward too, but it won't be as good as mine because I've been working a whole lot, lot longer than they have. The problem with that logic is that we are all 5 p.m. hires. We've all been blessed far more than we could ever possibly deserve. There's nothing that we could point to to say, I have earned my full day's wage. We say, I was hired at the last minute and God has given me so much more than I ever deserved, so much more than I could ever have dreamed. So let us not be a people that boasts in our own accomplishments, in our own righteousness, in our own works or faithful service. Let us boast in Christ alone. In Christ alone, my hope is found. He is my joy, my strength, my song. So what are we to do then with all of those works, all those accomplishments, all those things that we're so proud of that make us great in our own eyes? What about the job that I've worked so hard for, the promotion that I've got? What about the degree I've been working so hard for? What about those successes? When we put those things in perspective, what does Paul call all of his accomplishments? Look at verse 7. Whatever gain those things had for him in this life, he counted as nothing because of Christ. I want you to listen as Paul reiterates three times in this section how he feels about it. Three times. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. 
Indeed, I count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. Paul's accomplishments, as amazing as they were, were nothing more than a pile of trash in his mind compared to the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus his Lord. He was willing to suffer the loss of everything so that he could have more of Christ. And this is a man who had it all. He had prestige, he had power, he had money, he had standing, he had all the things that we are supposed to work for in this life. All the things that are the marks of success in this life, he had them. All the things that the world would look at and say, this is a man that we can respect and honor. All of those things, Paul says, I count as nothing more than a pile of trash because I have Christ. Take all this world, but give me Jesus. That's the cry of Paul. Give me Jesus. Take everything else, just give me Christ. I mean, who does that? Who gives up everything for this man called Jesus? Because it's it's a legitimate question. It's an important question. If you've never asked that question, you should. What would drive somebody to leave the comforts of North America to go into some Muslim country that has the risk of persecution, imprisonment, death, What would cause somebody to go into impoverished nations to serve the people there? What what drives somebody to stand before their parents or their neighbors or their family and say, I'm a follower of Jesus Christ, and I know that you may not agree with that, but I just can't hold it back anymore. I I have to tell somebody. What, what, What drives people to that? Let's make it even, even more personal. Who gives up buying a a new phone or or a new car or a new TV so that that money could be used for the sake of the gospel? Who gets up early in the morning to come and do this setup week after week without ever getting any sort of recognition for it? Who serves unnoticed for years in their community, working in shelters or caring for those who are in need without anyone ever knowing? Who does that? People whose lives have been radically changed by the gospel of Jesus Christ do that. People who know that this life is so much more than what we have materially. It's so much more than a large house and a big screen and extra sleep. These people know that this life was made for God. That God owns their lives and they rejoice in that fact. This is not a bad thing. This is a good thing. And having God is all that matters. And Paul's motivation for doing all these things is grounded not in his righteousness, but in Christ. He says that in verse 9, and being found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Jesus Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. What does that mean? Getting right with God is something that none of us could do on our own. We needed the righteousness that came from Christ. And the only way to get that is in faith. So we've come now full circle to what we were talking before. We talked about how hard it is to accept something that's been given to us that we haven't earned. But Paul is saying the only way to get that is through faith. 
We have to believe that God is who he says he is, that he is holy, that he is just. We must believe that we're all sinners, every single one of us. We must believe that we are without hope in this world and that there is nothing that we can do to earn our way to heaven. On the other side, then, we have to believe that God loves us, that he gave Jesus his own son to pay the penalty for our sin. We have to believe that the gift of salvation is offered to us absolutely free. And that God means what he says when he says, if you, will confess, if you believe in your heart and confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, you will be saved. We have to believe that. Sometimes, sometimes we fight against that. Sometimes we, but I, I, don't, I don't feel like I have been forgiven. I don't, I don't feel like that's true. Well, I want you to picture yourself standing in a wheat field in the middle of Saskatchewan. At that moment in time, when you're looking around you, does it feel like the earth is round? No, it really doesn't. It feels pretty flat. But you know it's round. The evidence backs it up. There's irrefutable proof that says the earth is round. Even though you don't feel it at that moment, it's true. This is the irrefutable proof that God forgives sinners. This is the irrefutable proof that God is faithful and just to forgive us our sins if we confess them. We may not feel like we have our sins forgiven. We have to fight against that and we have to believe that the word of God is true. Because this isn't a a blind faith. This isn't taking a step into the wide unknown, not knowing what's going to lie ahead. This is the only thing that actually makes any logical sense in this world. That this faith in Jesus Christ is what saves us. Not our jobs, not our houses, not our money, not our cars. It's Jesus Christ. And Paul says that now that he is righteous through Christ, before God, he's going to do several things. First, he wants to know Jesus and the power of his resurrection. He wants to know Jesus and the power of his resurrection. Have you ever, have you ever met somebody or do you know somebody who is just, it's just a privilege to know them? It's just a joy to know them. You, you don't ever have to worry about, uh, you know, what am I going to get from them? What are they going to get from me? You don't have to worry about any of these things. It's just, it's just a joy to know that person. It's a privilege to know them and to spend time with them. Be honest, my wife is one of those people. I just, I, I just love spending time with my wife. We can go out on a date. We don't even need to talk. I just, I just love being with her. I, lo- I love knowing her. Do we have that same kind of desire for God? Where it's just a desire to know God. And you might say, well, of course I do. You know, I mean, I, I pray to him, you know, three meals a day and... And sometimes during the playoffs, I pray extra hard. Like, of course, I, of course I know God. Of course, I desire God. But do you actually just desire to know him and the power of his resurrection? If you were to look back on your week, what evidence would you point to to say, I delight in knowing God. I delight in spending time with God. We do that in, in many different ways. Prayer, scripture reading, Small groups, getting together with other believers, just talking about our faith. Hey, what, what's God been teaching you this week? Oh, that's amazing. 
Can, can, can I share what he's been teaching me? Or on the reverse, you know what? I've been really struggling in my faith. Can you pray with me? Can you encourage me? This is how we grow in our desire for God, is by sharing the Christian life together. And Paul says that he wants to share in Christ's sufferings and be like him in his death. Now, don't forget, Paul was in prison at this point in time, and the Romans didn't do what we call like corrective incarceration, you know, where, where you go in jail, you pay your penalty, and then you get out. In Roman times, when you get put in jail, it's for one of two reasons. One, either you're going to be found innocent and released, or you can be found guilty and put to death. There's, there's, there's no in-between here, and at this point in time, Paul doesn't know which way it's going to go. And he was saying, at this point in time, I want to be like Christ. And I want to share in his sufferings, even if it leads to my death. Because th there, aren't, there aren't two different types of Jesuses that we can choose to follow. You know, there's like the, the easygoing Jesus for the easygoing Christian. And he's the one who only expects you to come on Sundays. And he's the one who kind of doesn't really care what you do during the week. Um, and he, you know, he's, he's the fun Jesus. And then there's the hard Jesus. And he's for like the hardcore committed Christians. And so you get to pick which one you want to follow. That's not, not the way Christianity works. There's, there's one Jesus. And that Jesus says, take up your cross and follow me. That Jesus says, don't be surprised if the world hates you. It's hated me before it's hated you. That Jesus says, go into all the world and make disciples of all men. That Jesus calls us to do radical things for him. And it's when we do what we fear most in our faith that we feel the power of God most in our lives. Suffering brings us closer to Christ sometimes in, in ways that nothing else ever could. So I, I ask you this morning, in what ways are you suffering for the gospel? What things are you sacrificing in your life so that the gospel can go out, so that people can know the truth of who Jesus is? Because there is a world that is dying. There's a world that is on its way to suffering in hell. What are we doing? What are we doing for those who are held captive by the enemy when we have the power of life to share with them? C.H. Spurgeon said, if sinners be damned, at least let them leap to hell over our bodies. If sinners are plunging headlong towards eternal damnation, at least let us stand in the gap. Who are you standing in the gap for? Who in your life are you standing to say, don't go any further? I know where this road ends and it is not good. You need Christ. Who are you standing in the gap for? Because all of us in our lives, if we are in Christ, all of us have had somebody stand in the gap for us. Whether it was a parent, whether it was a pastor, whether it was a friend, somebody stood in the gap for you and said, stop, you need Christ. So I ask, who are you standing in the gap for? Who are you sacrificing for so that they can come to the saving faith that is found only in Jesus Christ? <laughs> So we come to the end of this section. Paul says that by any means possible, I may obtain the inheritance from the dead. Now, the question is, like, is, is Paul worried that he might not? Like, is this why he's asking, you know, if by any means possible, because there's a chance that I might not get the resurrection from the dead. 
If you read Paul's writing, you know that's not what he's saying. What he's saying is that he wants to do anything. He's willing to go anywhere. He's willing to suffer whatever it takes for the rest of his life until that resurrection happens. He's willing to give up whatever it costs for the sake of the gospel. Because we know that eventually he would be released from this first Roman imprisonment. The question is, you know, so what, what did he do after that? Most of us, if we were released from prison after being charged with that, we'd be like, perfect, I'll keep my head down. I'm not going to cause any more trouble, and hopefully I can live out my life in quiet peacefulness. What does Paul do? He goes right back out on another missionary journey, building up the churches, spreading the gospel, standing in the public squares, saying, this God is false, repent and believe in the true God. This is the mark of Paul, willing by any means possible to obtain the resurrection from the dead. So I ask, what are you building in your life? What is important in your life? What are you identifying as your most valued treasure? Because if it is anything other than Christ, I encourage you to reevaluate your life. The time is too short. The time is too short. A couple of weeks ago, we had in Airdrie, you may have heard about it, a 12-year-old boy who died of carbon monoxide poisoning from an improperly installed water heater. When he woke up that morning, you can bet that he didn't know that that was his last day on earth. 12 years old. I've got an 11-year-old daughter. That scares the living daylights out of me. What are we focused on? What are we driving for? What are we counting as the most important? Let us be like Paul. Let us say, I count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. Let that be our battle cry this week, this year, for the rest of our lives. Let's pray. Our God, we are so thankful for the fact that you have loved us, that you have redeemed us. God, I pray that our lives would be marked by faithfulness to you, by by a desire to glorify you, to worship you, to magnify you. God, we realize we fall so far short so often of what you have called us to in our priorities, in our lives, and I pray that you would encourage us to to lay aside every weight and sin that so easily entangles and run with endurance the race that is set before us. God, we are so thankful for Christ. We're thankful for the cross. We worship and we glorify you and do this in Jesus' name. Amen.